Hello, and welcome to the December episode of the My Care Champion Cast. I'm your host, Lucicia Matero, Director of Communications at the Michigan Health and Hospital Association. As we observe National Influenza Vaccination Week, December 5th through 9th, I have two local experts joining me to provide the latest state data on vaccinations, in addition to some helpful takeaways for both providers and patients this flu season. The first guest I'll introduce is Dr. Natasha Bagdasarian, who is Chief Medical Executive for the State of Michigan. Dr. Bagdasarian is certified in both internal medicine and infectious diseases and is a fellow of the Infectious Disease Society of America. In her role with the state, Dr. Bagdasarian provides overall medical and public health guidance and serves as cabinet member of the governor. Dr. Bagdasarian, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on today. Well, I have no doubts that many of those listening are familiar with who you are and have probably worked with you, but I would love if you could share a little bit of insight on what led to your current role and also why did you choose healthcare? Um, well, I'm an infectious disease physician by training, and uh, ID was was always my first love. So since college, I knew I wanted to work in infectious disease, and I've always been fascinated by outbreaks and pandemics. Um, and uh, that led me to having some really interesting um, career experiences around the globe. I got to work for the World Health Organization uh, in Geneva. I worked in Singapore for many years. Um, I did some work in Bangladesh for the American Microbiology uh, Society. So I I had some really cool experiences. But in um, 2020, I moved back home to Michigan during the pandemic, and it just seemed like the perfect opportunity to give back to the state and work on COVID-19 and work Mm -hmm. on our response. And so I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to do that. Well, as a resident in Michigan, I can say firsthand how grateful I am for your expertise during that time. But I also can say from the MHA standpoint, our teams were working very closely with MDHHS and really your role has been invaluable and continues to be invaluable, not only for residents, but also our hospitals and health systems. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, of, of course. And and to jump into today's topic, um, can you start by sharing the latest on statewide childhood vaccination rates in Michigan? I mean, are we doing better or worse in terms of, of last year's rates? And can or should we expect any sort of surge in uh, pediatric illness the way we did last year? Really great question. So if we, if we parse that out a little bit, um, I'll say that overall with vaccines, we are not doing great right now. Um, if we're talking about routine childhood immunizations, so now I'm, I'm talking about just vaccinations in general, not talking about COVID or flu vaccines, just routine childhood vaccinations. We're actually doing quite a bit worse than we were before the pandemic. Um, wow. In 2017, our statewide childhood vaccination coverage rate was almost 76%. So we were doing really well. Um, That's for children between the ages of 19 and 35 months. And we're now down to about 66% in that age group. And this is for things like measles, mumps, rubella, um, routine vaccines that have been around for decades. So we are doing worse there. Now those rates pick up a little bit by the time kids start kindergarten. So that's one piece of good news. In terms of those seasonal vaccines, though, things like COVID-19 and influenza, we're also lagging a little bit. So influenza vaccine rates, now these are not just for kids. This is overall um, statewide right now. So this is as of early December 2023, we have administered about 2 million influenza vaccines statewide. Mm. Now, this is in a state of 10 million. And usually at this time of the year, 
uh, we have hit the 3 million mark. So we're lagging there. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of COVID-19, as you know, there's a new COVID-19 vaccine available to cover this season. And statewide, we're only at about 8% uptake. Wow. Um, So only about 8% of our residents have had this year's COVID vaccine. The numbers are, they're different in different age groups, are over 65-year-olds in the state do much better with their vaccines than uh, younger folks do. And Mm -hmm. that still holds true for this newer COVID-19 vaccine. So we're not doing as well as we had been just with vaccines overall. Mm -hmm. I think there are a number of reasons for that. And the pandemic is a big part of what we're seeing. Yep. You asked about whether we'd be seeing a surge in some of those viral respiratory infections. And uh, we are already starting to see those numbers going up. Oh, no. So is the COVID, the latest COVID vaccine, that's safe for children as well? It is. Okay. So COVID and influenza vaccines are both available for all Michiganders. Everyone over the age of six months mm-hmm. should get uh, and can get a COVID and flu shot, and they can be administered at the same time. They're available in lots of places around the state, including health departments, um, healthcare systems, doctor's offices, and uh, pharmacies, so lots of places to get those vaccines. We just aren't seeing a lot of uptake. Mm. There's also a new vaccine uh, available this year. There's the RSV vaccine, and that's available for folks over the age of 60 or those who are pregnant. So it's a more niche population there. Mm-hmm. And, and we're hoping that pregnant folks and those over the age of 60 will get their RSV shots as well. Right. And this is a question I, I wanted to ask both you and Dr. Denenberg, but if you don't mind, what what do you find are the most common reasons parents and caregivers in Michigan don't get their children vaccinated? I know you touched on it's kind of a resulting impact of the pandemic, but what other reasons do you hear from patients? You know, before the pandemic, there was a lot of vaccine hesitancy. I'm not a pediatrician. I take care of adult patients, but Mm -hmm. even with my young adults, so, you know, those who are 18, 19 years old, there's a lot of skepticism about vaccines that I don't see in older age groups. You know, when I, when I take care of my, my elderly patients, they are usually coming to me asking for vaccines. So there's more vaccine hesitancy, I think, in younger age groups. And I think that also applies to parents of young children. And it had been there for a long time. Mm -hmm. There has been misinformation about vaccines out there for a long time. Things that have been proven incorrect, like the myth that MMR causes autism. Mm -hmm. Um, It has been proven not to be an association, but people still have a, a bad feeling about that vaccine. People have all kinds of feelings about things like the HPV vaccine um, and and sort of thinking that their children uh, may at some point become sexually active. I think that's hard for some parents. Mm -hmm. And with the pandemic, there was just so much more misinformation and also deliberate disinformation out there. And and that makes me really sad. You know, it's one thing if people are um, spreading information that they think is true, but Mm -hmm. isn't. And with disinformation, there were folks who were spreading things that were clearly untrue and that they knew to be untrue about vaccines. And I think that that really changed people's feelings about vaccines. Mm -hmm. It 
caused a lot of distrust in the medical community, in the public health community, and and also just the politicization of of COVID. COVID became a political thing. It became something that um, reflected more about your political beliefs than your health beliefs. And I'd like to get us back to a place where we're just simply talking about health, because that's all this is. This is not a political issue at all. Right. And knowing that it has become such a polarizing topic as a result of the pandemic, what is the state having to do to address a lot of the misinformation that's out there? So a lot of the misinformation and disinformation that we see is is happening on social media mm-hmm. and within friend groups, within social networks. And it becomes harder to combat that kind of misinformation. So, you know, if if there is misinformation, we can provide correct information Mm -hmm. and we can put our correct information on social media as well. Um, We can put it on billboards and and we can um, push out our correct information in as many ways as we can. But the issue is whether the correct information gets shared in those same social networks. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't always. So there is a lot of national attention right now to combating uh, misinformation on on things like vaccines, but just public health overall. What what are the most common, you touched on a few, but what are the most common questions that you would say doctors are still seeing about vaccines? Um, there are some common uh, myths about vaccines that still exist. Mm-hmm. Some of the ones that I get in my clinical practice routinely are that I don't want to get the flu shot because it'll give me the flu. And the flu vaccine will not give people the flu. You can feel achy and tired afterwards, but that is a normal part of your immune response. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're you're just producing those antibodies. It means the vaccine is working. But a lot of people still believe that the flu shot will give them the flu. And then I've also heard some myths and misinformation about COVID-19 vaccine causing infertility and all kinds of things, which again, we know that uh, not only do they not do those things? It, it's um, it's not even it would not even be theoretically possible for some of these complications to occur. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when we look at the risks versus benefits from from vaccines, we know that with um, COVID vaccine, for example, that the risks of developing COVID far 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 outweigh any risks of complications or side effects from the vaccine itself. Right. I think that's a really important point. And how are you approaching reaching out to the people who are either vaccine hesitant or, I guess, anti-vaccine? How are you sharing information or addressing misinformation with those folks? Well, there are some folks who are anti-vaccine and nothing will change their mind. Mm-hmm. And, and so they're not going to be swayed by anything. But we've done um, numerous focus groups and there have been numerous, numerous studies done looking at who folks trust and who folks want to get their information from. Mm -hmm. And it's not always me. It's not always the state. Uh, In fact, it is rarely the state. (laughs) It's rarely government. Um, We still find that folks trust their physicians and their nurses, their healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. So folks want to get this information from their healthcare providers, number one. And number two, there are lots of trusted messengers within communities that people listen to. So they may listen to their pastor, their local faith leader, their local community leader, someone who leads an organization that they're a member of. And those are the people that they want to hear this information from more than me, for example. Mm. And so part of what we're really doing is we're trying to work with 
the healthcare community to make sure that the healthcare community has the best information and can answer some of these difficult questions, but also to make sure that faith leaders and other community leaders have information and and can also feel able to answer some of these questions about things that are sometimes outside of their purview. Well, that's kind of the perfect segue to my next question, which is how can hospitals and health systems support the state in their efforts to improve vaccination rates? Well, one of the things that we've seen is there are barriers to actually getting those shots in arms. Even when healthcare providers are having some of these difficult conversations about vaccines and talking about benefits of vaccines versus risks of of illnesses, sometimes those vaccines aren't available to, to, to get right there and then. So if, as a healthcare provider, I'm having a conversation about vaccines to either my patient or to a patient's parents, and I'm, I'm talking about how important it is to get vaccines. And at the end of the conversation, if they then say, gosh, I think this is a good idea. If I don't have that vaccine that day ready mm-hmm. to be administered, if I then have to tell that patient, well, you have to make an appointment and come back in a month or go to your local pharmacy or uh, go to our vaccine clinic it is creating barriers Mm -hmm. and it creates barriers for folks who don't have transportation, who can't take more time off work. Um, For folks who just aren't really motivated to get vaccines, it's just an additional thing that they don't want to have to worry about. And so my ask of healthcare leaders is to really focus on that accessibility issue. I think that in terms of the conversations, healthcare providers know, they know what to say. They know how to have these difficult conversations. We have difficult conversations about all kinds of things in our clinical practice. But if the vaccines aren't there to give that day, I think there are missed opportunities and we're losing people. Mm. So my, my ask of healthcare leaders is to please focus on accessibility. And there are still many, many primary care offices affiliated with large healthcare institutions that don't have COVID vaccine available, that don't have flu vaccine available, and that are in fact telling people to make a separate appointment. So accessibility is is my big ask of everyone. Right. And along the same lines, what would you say is your biggest piece of advice to providers who may be dealing with either a lack of trust or just misinformation that they're hearing from their patients? How should they go about addressing those instances? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really difficult. And Um, it's easier to give this advice than to be on the receiving end um, and have some of these difficult conversations. And and I do both. Um, And I think part of what I do is I I have to um, get a sense of the room. So if my patient just is simply not going to hear about vaccines, then then that's not really um, my time to force the issue. Um, I need to back off. And, And sometimes this work is not done in a day Sometimes these relationships need to be nurtured over time. Mm -hmm. And if folks aren't ready at one visit, maybe they'll be ready at their next visit. Maybe it'll take a long time for them to feel comfortable with you and feel that you're invested and that you're, you know, someone that they can trust. So my first piece of advice is to to really establish those relationships long-term if you can. So, Mm -hmm. you know, this is not possible if you're working in an ER, um, but it might be possible if you're working in primary care. So I I think that long-term trust is something that's really 
key and also reading the room and, and knowing when is a good time to have the conversation versus when is a time to maybe back off. Right. I think building that trust to your point is so much about meeting patients where they are and understanding that they may be looking for information versus to be persuaded one way or another. So what advice do you have for patients who may be looking for more information about the vaccines, whether it be the flu, COVID, RSV, where should they be going and who can they reach out to with those questions? You know, there's great information on, of course, the CDC website and on the MDHHS website. But again, we're finding that that's not really where a lot of people want to get their information from. So I would say that rather than having a conversation with someone on Facebook or on another social media platform, talk to your healthcare provider, Mm -hmm. um, make an appointment and sit down and talk to your healthcare provider and ask some of those questions that maybe they might seem silly, but you really want to know, you really want to get you really want to get those answers. Um, so just make sure you're talking to someone who has background and training in in healthcare and in immunizations mm-hmm. rather than listening to some of the some of the voices on social media. Absolutely. And beyond your primary care doctor, there's also local health departments, local pharmacies, community leaders, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of people who are there to help and answer vaccine questions for those who may have them. Where can we go to learn more from the state about vaccinations? You know, we we have lots of tools for fall and winter viral season as well. Um, so vaccines, of course, are the best way to prevent against um, serious illness. But if you do get sick, and you can probably hear from my voice that I am getting over a cold, but if you do get sick this season, there are lots of tools. And so you can learn about some of these tools on our website as well. So, you know, we, we have COVID-19 tests and you can still get free tests from the federal government. Um, So it's a good idea to test for COVID. If you're unwell, we have therapeutics. So there are medications like Paxlovid that can shorten your duration and reduce severity of COVID-19. We've got Mm -hmm. medications like Tamiflu for influenza. So we do have other tools. Um, There's also advice on things like staying home when you're sick. We really want people to stay home when they're unwell, whether or not it's COVID, whether or not it's flu. It's always a good idea to stay home and not spread those germs around. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are other tools besides vaccines. But one last thought, Lucy, I I get Mm -hmm. asked a lot about ways to for people to boost their immune systems, Mm -hmm. especially during the winter months. And in addition to things like getting a good night's sleep, exercising, eating a healthy, balanced diet, the best way to boost your immune system is actually by getting a vaccine. Um, Vaccines are immune boosters. They Mm -hmm. are um, signals to your immune system, telling your immune system exactly what to be on the lookout for. So, you know, take care of yourself overall. We want you to be healthy and well, but also um, I'd like folks to think about vaccines as immune boosters. I love that. I think that's a great way to put it. And it's your best protection against the flu, right? Exactly. Perfect. Well, I'm going to include links to all the resources that you mentioned throughout the episode today. And I just, again, like to thank you for joining me. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. And I hope that you start to feel better. Thanks for having me on. Now joining me is Dr. Matthew Denenberg, who serves as Chief of Pediatrics and is a practicing pediatric emergency medicine physician for Corwell Health Children's in Royal Oak, Michigan. Throughout his career, Dr. Dunnenberg has been active in many state and national medical organizations, sharing his passion for caring for children in safe, high-quality, family-centered patient care. Dr. Dunnenberg, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
So before we pick up where Dr. Bagdasarian left off, can you just start by sharing a little bit more about your role at Corwell Health and what exactly led you to becoming a pediatric clinician? Sure, absolutely. You know, I've actually been with Corwell or the previous Spectrum Health since 2003. This is really my first job with the exception of a little bit of time in Alaska since finishing residency. But I, I started pediatrics back in medical school. I knew I always wanted to work with children, you know, dating back to my time in college working with children. And so um, I also, with my personality, knew that I wanted to be in emergency medicine. So I gravitated towards pediatric emergency medicine. And so, of course, I ended up in, uh, I ended up coming back to Detroit where I grew up in the Detroit area. Uh, to work at Corwell Health East at Beaumont Children's, where I am now as the chief of pediatrics and still practice in the pediatric emergency department. So vaccination and, and you know, respiratory illness uh, are an important part of my work and an, and an important part of what we do as pediatricians. Absolutely. And and what would you say is the your favorite part of your job? My favorite part of my job is is helping, helping this is going to sound terrible. And my family thinks this is terrible when I say this sometimes, but I actually get satisfaction helping really sick kids. And and it, it comes from the fact that, you know, they have a long life ahead of them, a lot of opportunity. And so, you know, taking care of really sick children in the emergency department, I take great pleasure in seeing them leave the emergency department or, or get admitted to the hospital and leave the hospital and, um, and live a long life. Well, that in itself sounds extremely rewarding, and I I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule helping Michigan patients and children specifically to be with me here today. To dive into the discussion about childhood immunizations, can you give our listeners an idea of what a surge in pediatric illness has looked like in years past, Uh, not to scare anybody, but to give a real-life perspective on why it's so important that we do protect children from illnesses that are preventable, like the flu and RSV? Yeah. Sure. And we've been talking about this a lot lately, especially since last year's, you know, triple demic. So three viruses at once across the country, quite frankly. To me, every year, starting around October, we start seeing respiratory illnesses, RSV, flu, other respiratory illnesses. And our hospitals and our emergency departments go from, you know, a certain level of capacity. So maybe 60 or 70 percent full to 100 percent full. Right. So children's hospitals are always Mm -hmm. busier during respiratory season, what we call respiratory season. And so every year we see RSV and flu. Some years are worse than others. Some years the hospitals are busier for three months. Some years they're busier for six weeks, but they're always busier and we always have a surge in patients. Last year was Mm -hmm. particularly severe in that not only did we have a surge greater than I've seen in my 30 years doing this, but our hospitals were full, our ICUs were full, our emergency departments were full, our EMS You know, our paramedics um, were transporting patients were too full. We, you know, to me, that was a surge on steroids. You know, we were seeing Mm -hmm. patients, more patients than we could take care of in in, across the state, quite frankly, across the country. And and so that that was a true surge. That was a recognition that we don't have enough capacity in our ICUs across the country for children. We don't have enough beds. We don't have enough caregivers. This year. Um, we're seeing a normal sort of high rise of RSV and flu right now. We're starting to see uh, our, our hospitals start to fill up, but it feels like a normal bad year or a normal busy year. It doesn't feel like that mm-hmm. you know, crazy surge that we saw last year, um, but we're busy. Our right. ERs are full, our hospitals are full, our pickies are starting to fill up. But um, it feels to someone who's been doing this for you know, almost three decades, it feels like a you know, relatively busier than normal, but normal respiratory season for us. 
That's good to hear. And I know that you did mention, you know, staffing shortages and a lot of the challenges that hospitals are overcoming as a result of the pandemic made that triple-demic so much worse. Would you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, last year we had historically low vaccination rates across the state. Is that true? Do you think that contributed a large amount to the reason that hospitals were so overwhelmed by that pediatric surge? Well, I would, maybe not, right? Because we didn't have Mm -hmm. an RSV vaccine last year, which we have this year. So a lot of the surge last year was because of a particularly robust RSV season more than we've seen in decades. And Mm -hmm. this year we actually have an RSV vaccine. So we actually have a chance going forward to make a you make a make a dent or make you know make some progress in having less of an RSV season in the future, but last year I think it's a combination of less flu vaccination, and I'm sure Dr. Bagdasarian spoke about that. Less flu vaccination, mm-hmm. more people, less COVID vaccination, right? So a lot a lot vaccination rates are certainly down, but last year was just a pre- predominantly bad RSV or some more RSV cases. Mm-hmm. The virus seemed to be worse than normal. So lots of things contributed to the surge. And of course, the staffing shortages, um, especially in pediatrics, are a problem. Pediatrics is a specialty where we really mm-hmm. need people that are really good at taking care of kids. And mm-hmm. we are short nurses and physicians in the ER and in the ICUs and, and paramedics and respiratory therapists and all the other people that need special skills at taking care of kids. Right. Absolutely. And there's so many opportunities across the state for the people that are interested in, in pursuing those careers. And I just want to Shamelessly mentioned that uh, we have uh, the My Hospital Careers campaign page um, that I would encourage anybody listening that's interested in a healthcare career, whether it's clinical or non-clinical, um, to help fill those gaps and, and, and support the community and help everybody be healthier and support teams like Dr. Denenberg's who need it when things are, when people are especially sick. So I do want to ask, I didn't ask Dr. Bagdasarian this. When it comes to sites of care, I think every year we try to remind people when they should be going to the emergency room and when they might opt for something like an urgent care or their local pediatrician. What are the signs and symptoms that you would say are are more on the severe side where they should be going to the hospital? And what symptoms do you think they're safe to either give their pediatrician a call or go to an urgent care nearby? I'm I'm as a pediatric emergency physician, I'm a strong advocate of not always, but if you can call your primary care physician or your, or your primary care provider, APP or physician, and ask their advice, right? So, you know, most of the most of the kids that get RSV or flu or one of the other respiratory viruses this time of year do not need to go to the emergency department. They don't need to go to the urgent care. They don't need to go necessarily see their doctor. That said, difficulty breathing, persistent high fever, you know, more than a day, not acting normal, dehydrated, you know, the kinds of things that you would make a parent you're breathing fast, you know, certainly call your doctor, find out what they say. And if you think you're too sick to call your doctor, bring them to the emergency department and, you know, God forbid you need to call 911, but if it's really, really struggling to breathe, but, but most kids that get RSV and I, and I tell this to people, if you take a hundred children or, or babies that get RSV, about 20% of them probably need to see their doctor or be in the emergency department and only about about half of those kids or a third of those kids end up needing to actually be admitted to the hospital for support. So most kids that get RSV or the flu do just fine with outpatient, you know, plenty of fluids, anti-fever medications, um, those kinds of things. I appreciate you mentioning that. I think a lot of people, and it's it's normal for parents to be scared and not sure what to do. And, and some people jump right to, let me take my child to the emergency room, but it's good to hear from a clinician that that's not always the necessary step. And you might end up waiting longer in an emergency room for care, um, which could be, you know, 
worse for the child who maybe isn't feeling well. So to get back to vaccinations and pediatric vaccinations specifically, what do you think are the most common, or I guess what do you see are the most common reasons parents and caregivers don't typically get their children vaccinated? Is it just general hesitancy or what reasons do you hear from your patients? Yeah, so that's a really, really interesting question. And we, we use the term vaccine hesitancy. And I think we've seen a lot of press and a lot of conversation around, you know, vaccine hesitancy the last couple of years, especially with COVID. And, you know, while it's, it's, seems to be common for people to blame it on social media and the anti-vaccination effort. Vaccine hesitancy and anti-vaccination are two different things. I think one of the things I think we see, and particularly in children more so than adults, why we see more vaccine hesitancy is I think parents are are questioning the safety of vaccines, right? And they're hearing things in, in the lay press, they're reading things, they're seeing things in the community. These are new, sometimes new vaccines that that haven't been necessarily given before. So parents are rightfully concerned about the safety of vaccines, the safety of whether it's true, which it's not, that they cause autism, those kinds of things. I think there are personal beliefs and cultural beliefs that I think drive some people away from vaccinations. I think some there are some communities and some people that just don't trust vaccines. They don't, especially when we start talking about things like RNA and the science behind vaccines. And, and, and then, of course, there's people that believe they don't need them, right? You know, Dr. Denenberg's mm-hmm. out here telling me that if I get RSV, you know, low chance my child's even going to get that sick. It's going to be like a common cold. So why should I get a vaccine to prevent the common cold? And so, you know, I think that people believe that there's a lack of need for it. Um, and so I think those all add to sort of the, the hesitancy. The true people that are anti-vaccination is a very small percentage. I actually think, and I'm sure mm-hmm. Dr. Bagdasirian talks about this, vaccine hesitancy is something that we actually can get a get a handle on and we need to work at, especially since Michigan is actually approaching that 60, 60, 62% vaccination rate for normal everyday childhood vaccinations. And that's a real problem. You know, RSV, flu, those things aside, if we start seeing measles and mumps and rubella and God forbid, things like polio again, um, you know, Mm. we'll really be in, in trouble. Yeah, I, yeah, that would be a very scary situation. And I'm sure post pandemic, nobody wants to see anything like that. Um, you touched on a few of the misconceptions, and I, I think maybe if you don't mind sharing a few more that you see, but also when you say that we have the opportunity to to get a grasp on some of the misinformation that's there. And again, there, like you said, just to echo that, there are more people who are on the fence and unsure than there are people that are simply anti-vaccination altogether. So what's your approach to getting in touch with those people or those patients that you see that are just not sure or don't have all the information and um, rightfully are are concerned about safety before they have all the information that they need. How do you approach that and, and what works and what doesn't? I actually believe like a lot of other things in healthcare, the lack of vaccination or vaccine hesitancy boils down to trust, right? We, we need to have a trusting relationship with our patients and the parents of our patients in order for them to be willing to get vaccines, right? And so for a long time, we thought if we get a movie star on TV to say vaccines are important or, or Dr. Denenberg, who they don't know from, you know, from, from anybody else who's giving a, doing advertisement that, that they'll convince them they're vaccinated. I really do believe if we get this down to basics, if we get folks talking to their primary care physicians or their, or their family practitioners or the, the nurse practitioners in their offices, if we get them talking to their, their school nurses or their, their teachers, or we get them talking to their clergy and people start mm-hmm. talking to those people that, that they trust 
and, and have a meaningful, trusting conversation about vaccines, I think our vaccine rates will, will climb back up. If we continue to just put on the news, vaccines are important. You know, some famous movie star says, go get vaccinated because they got vaccinated. I don't think we're going to make as much progress as we want. We've got to get back down to basics. It's primary care mm-hmm. physicians. It's the people that are trusted in the community. It's teachers, it's clergy, it's doctors. It's, it's those groups of people that people trust the same way we talk about any other kind of health care, taking medications, mm-hmm. you know, um, doing anything that's good for our health. We just we have to get down to that trusting patient, patient doctor or patient, you know, patient trusted person relationship. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. And the only thing I'd add there is like faith leaders, people that aren't necessarily on the medical side, I think are still trusted resources for information of how to stay healthy and safe. Um, so, yes, I, I agree with everything you said. We've had some great success when we get clergy or faith leaders involved in these conversations, um, mm-hmm. especially we saw that during COVID. So I know I agree 100 percent. Yeah. Do you have tips or resources that you provide to fellow clinicians when it comes to addressing vaccine hesitancy? Is there specific tools that you use? Yeah, there, there's there's quite a bit of information, especially since COVID, because we, you know, it's not that vaccine hesitancy and vaccine rates weren't an issue before COVID, although we were making progress, for example, in the state of Michigan, we were actually going up over the last decade, recovering from some problems we had decades ago. And so what we what we want to share with our providers and the folks that work for me is things like CDC, American Academy of Pediatrics, um, Children's Hospital Association, everybody, there, there are some toolkits out there. There are some things that we can use to talk in a trusting way about the effectiveness, the safety, where vaccines come from. So we share those tools with our providers. And then what I try and share with them is just get out there and spend some time with your patients. And if, and if they don't, if they're not ready to get the vaccine on the first visit, that's okay. Schedule mm-hmm. them again in a couple of weeks and get them to think about it. Let them go home and talk to their family, their faith-based leaders, their, their friends that have had the vaccination. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to mm-hmm. gain their trust back on the first visit. And so I think the, those tools that come out from some of the MDHHS, you know, has incredible resources. The my the my vaccine campaign itself has has a whole section on talking about how do we how do we get past vaccine hesitancy in a scientifically evidence based proven way to help our patients. So. Mm, yes, I appreciate you bringing up those resources, and I think that's such a good point that if a patient is hesitant about a vaccine, pushing them to do it in that first visit or even in the first couple isn't going to help them. I think if I was a patient and I was unsure and, and a doctor was telling me like, no, you have to do this, I, I might go the other way. I might think, well, why are you pushing this so hard? So I appreciate you mentioning that sometimes it's just about gaining the trust and giving people the information they need and the time to consider um, what what's best for their family. The, dif- the difference is it's the language, right? Hesitancy mm-hmm. is not anti-vaccination and it's not right. against vaccination. It's not never vaccination. It's mm-hmm. I need a little more information to make sure that this is safe for my child. Right. And I think there's the people that are anti-vaccination. And again, to your point on like social media, it, it makes people afraid to admit if they're hesitant because they're afraid they're going to be grouped in with people that are absolutely anti-vaccine. And, and to your point, those are two totally separate things. For misconceptions, I I know that these are probably, a lot of people listening have probably heard them, but I do want to run through a few. Um, Does the flu vaccine cause the flu? No, the flu vaccine does not cause the flu. The flu vaccine can have some side effects, like a little bit of achiness, low-grade fever, but it does not cause the flu. It triggers a reaction in the body that simulates the flu so that when you actually do get the flu, your body fights it faster and better. 
perfect. And is it safe for children to get multiple vaccines in one visit? I think this is especially relevant if we're looking at now there'll be an RSV vaccine in addition to the flu vaccine. Could they get both of those in one visit? Yes, it's very it's very safe. And in fact, I just got um, I got my COVID vaccine and my flu vaccine on the same day in the same arm. So yes, it's very safe. In fact, there are even the childhood vaccinations. You can get all three at once. Now, some pediatricians give two at once because the families prefer not to have three shots at once, but you can get all your vaccinations at once. Good to know. I got both of mine at the same time too. So I appreciate you bringing that up. And the side effects were not bad at all. <laughs> um, what does the flu vaccine, why does it change every year? The, the flu itself is, is a virus that every, every year it's a little bit different, right? So without getting too scientific, the way the virus causes infection, there's a coding on the virus that changes every year. And so what scientists and immunologists do is they try and predict with as much certainty as they can what next season's flu is going to be like. And they get some information from other parts of the world when they're doing that. And so they're pretty good, actually. You know, uh, the flu vaccine this year, from what I understand, is, is very effective. But they try and predict what's coming. And they've done a really good job over the years uh, predicting. And so every year the flu is a little different. So they predict what it's going to be like. And then that's why it changes every year. Good to know. And then I, I want to close out with just two a two-part question. Um, and I know it may be repetitive to what you've already shared, but what would you say is your biggest piece of advice uh, related to childhood vaccination specifically that you would leave first with parents and then what advice you would leave with a fellow providers? Yeah, and I'll, and I'll tie those two together. For parents, communicable diseases and the illnesses that are caused, that are preventable from vaccines can be life-threatening and it's important to get vaccinations, not only for the safety and health of your child, but the community around them. And I'm not just talking about flu and COVID and, and, the, and the new RSV vaccine. I'm talking about the regular childhood vaccinations against measles, mumps, rubella, polio, so on and so forth. So I think it's important. I also think it's important for you to understand that we, we get that it's your child. And so we need to work with you. And this is the piece for the physicians. We need to work with our patients and families so that they trust us trust in the science, trust in the vaccinations so that we can help them help their child and help the community by getting vaccinated. So it's really helping the families understand how important it is to be vaccinated for the health of their child and for their family and the community and how important it is as providers for us to step back and listen and help those that are a little bit hesitant to, to trust us and trust in the vaccines and, and, and get the vaccine. And so providers can't just rush in and say, this is the best thing. You better do this or else. I think providers have to have to learn to sit back and realize that that there is some hesitancy and they have to work through that. Absolutely. I think that is wonderful advice on both sides. And I appreciate you sharing that. Is there anything you would add um, just as, as we continue on? I know it's December and, and the respiratory illness season is well underway, but any anything else you'd add? No, it's funny. I'm a, as a PR, as an ER physician, I say the same thing whenever I get asked this question. Good hand washing, cover your mouth when you cough, get your vaccinations. If if you're if you're sick, try not to be around other people. And, you know, like we have for a long, long time during cold and flu season, take take normal precautions. If if you can get the RSV vaccination this year and you're eligible, get it. Mm -hmm. Hopefully next year it'll be more widely available for a lot more people. But you know, anything we can do to decrease the number of kids that get sick enough to need to be in the hospital will help us prevent those surges that we were talking about earlier. Perfect. Perfect. I would love it. I would love it if everybody got vaccinated as an ER physician put me out of business. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, I would love that too. But also I want you to have a job. So, <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Denenberg. I know we haven't had a chance to work together before, but I've heard wonderful things and um, I've seen you speak on this topic. And I'm just so grateful that we had a chance to get on your schedule. Um, where can our listeners go to learn more about Corwell Health? Uh, CorwellHealth.org. And uh, I think the Beaumont Children's website, BeaumontChildrens.org also, but I think uh, CorwellHealth.org is where they should go. Perfect. Well, I will include a link to that in the episode's description. And I would just encourage anyone who isn't to subscribe to our podcast. Um, and we will be back in January with a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Lucy. Thanks for listening to the My Care Champion Cast. To learn more or get involved, visit mha.org.